When I first started this episode of the Crimes to Change a Nation podcast, America was reeling from another school shooting. This time, as in Sandy Hook before it, young children were the primary victims. On the 24th of May, 2022, an 18-year-old gunman entered Robb Elementary School in a small town in the state of Texas. By the time the police had shot and killed the gunman, 19 students and two teachers had lost their lives. The initial introduction to this episode pondered the relevancy of this episode in relation to that latest shooting. But then time passed and more and more shootings happened. Some in schools, some in shopping malls, some in other places altogether. And so as the death toll rose, so too did the scope and importance of this episode. For those unfamiliar with the British educational system, A primary school is a British institution that cares for a similar age group to that of an elementary school. The shooting at Dunblane Primary School was to become one of the most significant crimes in British history. Unlike other countries where such tragedies have almost become a part of life, that a school shooting could happen here in the United Kingdom was shocking, as was the mere fact that it was a shooting. The shooting at Dunblane Primary School was to become one of the most significant crimes in British history. It also remains, to this day, the UK's most deadly mass shooting, as well as the last shooting that involved a handgun. There have been shootings since, with shotguns and rifles having been used, but nothing of the scale of Dunblane. While the crime itself is widely known within the United Kingdom, the gunman's real name is often missing from the narrative. And from what I know from my research, that's very much deliberate. There is now research from within the United States which tends to support the theory that the name of the gunman should not be widely published, as there's a concern that it can glorify the perpetrator and the crime. In an article with the Associated Press, Adam Lankford, a criminologist at the University of Alabama who has studied the influence of media coverage on future school shooters, emphasised the importance of avoiding excessive coverage of the gunmen, specifically who they are and their supposed motive. Quote, A lot of these shooters want to be treated like celebrities. They want to be famous. So the key is to not give them that treatment. End quote. It's a concern that perhaps best proves itself in how the Columbine shooting was handled and just how pivotal that moment has been in a wider context. The names of those shooters were everywhere, with fan clubs having popped up to champion their supposed causes. Their faces and names were on the front page of various newspapers around the world, with a misinformed suggestion that they were tortured and bullied teens sinking into American consciousness. In reality, that was deeply untrue, and the handling of the incident has since become a huge source of criticism. It's no coincidence that it has since been suggested that Columbine is a crime that is said to have been referenced in the manifestos of countless subsequent shooters. And so to that end, I will also be omitting the gunman's name from this podcast. His name is widely available online, and me referencing him here serves no purpose. From here on in, I will simply refer to him as gunman. What I can say is that he was a 43-year-old man from the local area. In the very first episode of the Crimes That Changed Nations podcast, we're going to consider the lasting impact that the Dunblane shooting had on the country and specifically how it changed the United Kingdom forever.
It's a Tuesday, the 13th of March 1996, a day that started in much the same way as any other. Bill Clinton was President of the United States, and here in the UK, the Conservative Party was still in power. The Labour landslide was over a year away, and for the time being, John Major was still Prime Minister. The village of Dunblane in Stirling, Scotland, was as far removed from America and Westminster as it's possible to be, unaffected by the busy lives of the political establishment. And yet within a few hours of the usual ringing of the alarm clocks, it was to become infamous. A town and date that would forever be linked in British consciousness, and would eventually be the source of much legislative change within the United Kingdom. The weather was slowly starting to move towards the lighter, breezier and somewhat warmer temperatures of spring. But on that particular day, there was a chill in the air, and cars wore a thin layer of frost. At 8.15am, the gunman was seen scraping the ice off his windscreen, right outside of his home on Kent Road. He's not seen again until 9.30am when he entered the school. Now, considering that he only lived five miles away from his intended target, we may never know what happened in between those time frames. It remains a bit of a mystery. At 9.30am, the gunman parked his car near a telegraph pole in the grounds of the primary school. At this point, he exited his vehicle and cut the phone lines that were on the pole, disconnecting a nearby house from the communications network. Having done this, presumably to delay any contact being made with emergency services, the gunman calmly walked towards the school. In his possession were a total of four weapons, each of them legally registered to him, as well as a collection of 743 rounds of ammunition. For context, the four weapons he was carrying were handguns, two 9mm Browning HP pistols and two Wesson M19 .357 Magnum revolvers. When he entered the building, the gymnasium was already in use, with Primary 1, the youngest children in that school, about to have their physical education or PE, as we Brits tend to call it. Joining the children in that class were three members of staff. Primary one were joined by their 45-year-old class teacher, Gwen Mayer. A married mother with two daughters, Gwen lived in Dunblane. The students were also joined by their PE teacher, Eileen Harold, while the third member of staff was Mary Blake, a teaching assistant. Before entering the gym, the gunman immediately fired two shots into the stage of the assembly hall, immediately alerting the teachers and staff to his presence. And yet before they had time to react, he began firing in quick succession. The three members of staff were amongst the first to be injured. From what we know, PE teacher Elaine was shot first, with both her arms having been injured while she tried to shield herself. Somehow, she managed to stumble into the gym's open-plan store cupboard and was also able to usher several children in with her. Sadly, Primary 1 teacher Gwen Mayer was unable to escape and she appears to have been the very first person to have lost their life. The teaching assistant, Mary Blake, was also badly injured, having sustained wounds to her head and both legs. She not only survived, but managed to make her way into a store cupboard, again taking several children with her. Between his unexpected entry into the building and the few steps it took him to enter the hall, the gunman had fired 29 shots, killing one teacher, 
one child and injuring countless others. The gunman then proceeded to walk through the gym, firing a further six shots as he did so. He then fired a further eight into the opposite side of the room. Walking into the centre of the room, he brutally fired a further 16 shots into a group of children who were already badly injured. It was at roughly this point in the time frame that a pupil from Primary 7 was walking past the gym. As he did so, he heard a series of loud bangs and screams coming from inside. Curious as to what was happening, and obviously not suspecting the actual scenario, he headed over to look at what was happening. Peering into the gym, the pupil was spotted by the gunman, who fired a warning shot towards him. Thankfully, the bullet missed, but the pupil was injured by the glass, which had shattered. Peering into the gym, the pupil was spotted by the gunman, who fired a shot towards him. Thankfully, the bullet missed, but the pupil was injured by glass, which had shattered as he was running away. Perhaps having sensed that there was now some movement within the school, the gunman indiscriminately fired 24 shots in various directions from where he was standing. It's been suggested that he also witnessed an adult walking across the playground, and so he also began firing at the windows next to the fire exit on the southeast end of the gym. He then fired a further four shots into the fire exit door. At this point, Grace Tweddle, another member of staff, was injured. Whether or not she is the same adult that the gunman was aiming at or not, I was unable to establish. Next to be targeted was the mobile classroom, which was based just outside the fire exit where the gunman was now standing. The teacher in that classroom, Catherine Gordon, had realised what was happening and had instructed her children to get onto the floor. Prior to following this instruction, one pupil had witnessed the gunman and later told the Smithsonian what he, as an 11-year-old, had seen. Quote, I looked over and saw the gunman. He was coming toward me, so I just dived under my desk when he turned and fired at us. The firing was very fast, like someone hitting a hammer quickly. Then there was a few seconds of pause, and he started again. End quote. Having seen the movement in the classroom next door, the gunman aimed his gun at that class and fired nine shots. Most of the bullets hit books and other material within the room. One of these bullets ended up in the chair where a child had just been set in. Had Catherine Gordon not acted as quickly as she had, many more lives might have been lost. Having briefly left the gym, the gunman now returned. He dropped the pistol that he'd been using on the floor and instead took out his revolver. He held the gun to his own body and ended his killing spree. The first call to the police had been made by the headmaster at 9.41am after he was alerted to the possible presence of a gunman. It was actually the assistant heads teacher who had raised the alarm as she had heard screams coming from the gym and also noticed the spent shell cartridges that were laying on the floor. The headmaster himself had heard some suspicious loud bangs but such is the unlikelihood of an active shooter being in a school in the United Kingdom he had assumed that it must have been builders on a nearby site. Having placed the first call the headteacher made his way to the gymnasium realising that the shooting seemed to have come to a stop but unsure of what or who were going to be there to greet him. Observing the scene in front of him, he called the deputy headmistress and told her to call for an ambulance. She did so, placing a second emergency services call at 9.43am. As a result of this call, the A&E in Stirling Royal Infirmary was informed that there was a major incident 
and they should expect to receive multiple serious casualties. The first ambulance arrived at the school at 9.57am in response to that second phone call and a further medical team arrived at 10.04. Having grasped the seriousness of the situation, the second team contained a nurse and a doctor, having come from the Dunblane Health Centre. These two teams were shortly followed by more. By 11.10am, all of the injured had been taken to Stirling Royal Infirmary for medical treatment. One child had died en route. Once at the hospital, several of the children were actually moved to other hospitals who were better able to cope with traumatic injuries. The shooting had lasted three to four minutes, but had left 16 people fatally wounded, 29 more injured, one of whom died on their way to the hospital. In total, 17 people, not including the gunman, had lost their lives. They were Gwen Mayer, 45, the teacher of Primary 1, Abigail McClellan, 5, Victoria Clydesdale, 5, Sophie North, 5, Ross Irvine, 5, Mary Macbeth, 5, Melissa Curie, 5. Megan Turner, 5. Kevin Hassel, 5. John Petrie, 5. Joanna Ross, 5. Hannah Scott, 5. Emma Croizer, 5. Emily Morton, 5. David Kerr, 5. Charlotte Dunn, 5. And Brett McKinnon, age 6. The gunman had been born in May 1952 in Glasgow, Scotland, and prior to the shootings he'd found himself the subject of a number of serious allegations. The focus of this podcast series is how crimes do, can and have changed countries, with a focus being on cultural and legislative changes that have happened. The perpetrators are a footnote to this podcast, relevant only in the broadest of senses, and where possible, they will not be the focus. However, in this instance, it is worth briefly mentioning a small amount of background information that we have about the gunman. For a period of time, the gunman had been the head of several youth organisations, but had been accused of some inappropriate behaviour. He'd been accused of having been sexually improper towards young boys. The police had been told of this situation. In 1973, he was appointed as an assistant leader with the Scout Association. And later that year, he was seconded as leader to the 24th Stirlingshire Troop, which was being revived. During this time period, he was the source of several complaints, including that he was forcing Scouts to sleep too close to him inside his van during hill-walking expeditions. He'd also been accused of either taking or having tried to take inappropriate pictures. In 1974, his scout warrant was withdrawn. At the time of the shootings, he'd been working as a shopkeeper. By this point, the scouts had blacklisted him, but this didn't stop him from applying to be a leader once again. In letters written before the shootings, he had claimed that these allegations were nothing more than rumours, but that they had caused the decline of his business in 1993. He also suggested that the local police were persecuting him, as they allegedly prevented him from organising a boys' club within the local area. It's also been reported that he actually wrote letters to a number of high-profile people about these allegations, including Queen Elizabeth II and two of his local MPs. While it's unclear if he received any kind of response, it does seem incredibly unlikely, but he was one day to be brought to the attention of the politicians. Because the Dunblane shooting did get media attention pretty quickly, it was a story that captivated the country. 
and while it wasn't the only or the last mass shooting, it was a turning point and did mark a huge shift in British policy. In an interview with the Smithsonian Magazine in March 2021, criminologist Peter Squires eloquently outlined why. Quote, The notion that someone would use a handgun to kill children, like shooting fish in a barrel, was just so appalling that it provoked a reaction beyond that which had been experienced with Hungerford. End quote. The Hungerford massacre was a mass shooting that had taken place just nine years prior to Dunblane. An incident that took place in the village of Hungerford in the United Kingdom. During this incident, 16 people had been murdered. And while it did initiate the gun debate, very little had been achieved. This was partly due to political willpower to bring about gun reform, but it was also due to the important role that the gun lobby had played at the time within the United Kingdom. The Dunblane shooting shifted the narrative, partly due to the nature of the crime and its victims, but also because it couldn't now be argued that a mass shooting was a one-time thing. At this point, it's worth briefly pointing out that the core issue here is access to guns, but it's also worth highlighting that in reality, Britain has always had a slightly different relationship with guns in comparison with its American counterpart. And so while change was made as a result of Dunblane, widespread gun access was never really a thing in the United Kingdom, with gun controls already being fairly restrictive. In the wake of the shootings, an inquiry was quickly convened, with its main goal being to establish core gaps in the legislation and also to prevent similar incidents. The Cullen Report was the end result of this process. It suggested that the government introduce tighter controls on handgun ownership. Further to this, it also suggested that the government consider an outright ban on the private ownership of guns, while maintaining that club ownership should still be allowed. As part of the inquiry, the gunman's previous contact with the police was also considered. Initially, it was decided that this evidence would be hidden under the 100-year law. The reason given for this was that it was to protect the children involved, but there have since been accusations of a cover-up. Lord Advocate Colin Boyd reviewed the decision and as a result, edited versions of some of the documents were released in October 2005. However, it was agreed that certain documents, such as medical records and the postmortems of the victims, were to be held under the previous protective legislation. These documents revealed that in 1991, complaints were made to Central Scotland Police regarding the gunman's conduct, and were investigated by the Child Protection Unit. He was then reported to the Procurator Fiscal for consideration of 10 charges. These included assaults, obstructing the police and contravention of the Children and Young Persons Act. And yet despite this, no action was taken. It is also revealed that the local authorities had previously questioned the gunman's fitness to own a rifle from as early as 1991, but nothing was ever done to revoke the gun licence. Interestingly, this is something that has returned to the forefront following the recent shooting incident in Plymouth. A few months before that shooting took place, in August of 2021, the gunman in that case had temporarily had his gun removed due to allegations that he had been branded during an argument. And yet, despite his ongoing mental health issues, the gun had been returned to him, raising concerns over whether there should be further reform. In both of these cases, red flags were overlooked, allowing the gunman to then go on to commit the crimes. The final suggestion that was offered in the report was that more needed to be done to consider past criminal behaviour and it suggested that those working with under-18s should be more thoroughly vetted. 
Considering these suggestions, the Home Affairs Select Committee agreed with the need for there to be further restrictions on gun ownership, but it refused to suggest an all-out ban on private ownership. While all of this was happening in Parliament, the families of those lost in Dunblane, as well as others who died in the Hungerford Massacre, started their own advocacy group. The Gun Control Network was founded by the bereaved to campaign for a ban on the private ownership of guns. But there was also more to it, because increasing numbers of the bereaved were becoming frustrated over the lack of conversation that was being had about guns within the United Kingdom. Specifically, they wanted conversations as to whether or not there should be any sweeping changes as a result of what had happened. Mick North, whose five-year-old was killed in the attack, recounted to BuzzFeed in 2018 how hard it had been at the time to talk about guns. Quote, The initial reaction was, You can say how devastated you're feeling and how you've lost your lovely child, but you couldn't say anything about guns. End quote. The end result of the group and their endeavour was the Snowdrop Petition. Unsurprisingly, given the levels of emotion connected, the petition hit 750,000 signatures in just 10 weeks and had reached a million views by the time it was eventually debated. Following this debate, the then Prime Minister John Major announced the Firearms Amendment Act in 1997, a change that officially banned cartridge ammunition handguns, with the only exception being .22 calibre single-shot weapons. But for some, that reform didn't go far enough. Just a few months later, following the Labour Party's historical landslide in the May of 1997, Tony Blair became Prime Minister. He and his government decided to take matters further and subsequent legislation saw the sale of the remaining .22 cartridge handguns be banned as well. He and his government decided to take matters further and subsequent legislation saw the sale of the remaining .22 cartridge handguns banned as well. The end result was that only muzzle-loading weapons, sporting rifles and historical handguns were legal within the United Kingdom. The Gun Control Network's campaign and the subsequent Snowdrop petition are still considered to be one of the most successful campaigns in British history. As soon as the new amendments were passed, the government launched a buyback scheme in a bid to gather up any and all guns that now fell outside of the law. As soon as the new amendments were passed, the government launched a buyback scheme in a bid to gather up any and all guns that now fell outside of these laws. The end result was the surrender of 162,000 guns and 700 tonnes of ammunition. It's worth noting that there has never really been a debate over, quote, right to bear arms in the UK, and any reluctance to make legislative changes tended to come from a want of those who use weapons in a leisure setting. As a result, it tends to be a far less polarising issue here in the UK, hence so many were willing to surrender their weapons. In 2004, the Dunblane Centre was opened, a community centre that was built with donations that came from around the world. The centre serves as a site for community, celebration and remembrance. It hosts a number of community events, including fitness classes, a choir and a Lego building club. In 2013, it was also a venue where people had gathered to watch Andy Murray, who himself had survived the shooting, take part in Wimbledon. The windows of the centre each bear an etching of those who died. Each has gold leaf with an image that references something that was important to that victim. In March 2018, a month after the Parkland shootings in Florida, which left 14 teenagers and three teachers dead, 
Those affected by the Dunblane shooting wrote a letter of condolence to the American community. It had been penned by those affected by the Dunblane massacre and was written in a demonstration of solidarity, but also as a hope for the future. It referenced the successful campaign. An excerpt published in the Smithsonian Magazine said, quote, Laws were changed, handguns were banned, and the level of gun violence in Britain is now one of the lowest in the world. Wherever you march, wherever you protest, however you campaign for a more sensible approach to gun ownership, we will be there with you in spirit, end quote. As for how effective the reforms have actually been, the evidence largely speaks for itself. The Dunblane massacre marked a turning point, and in the years since, there have been no further incidents of this kind. As for how effective the reforms have been, the evidence largely speaks for itself. The Dunblane massacre marked a turning point in British history, and in the years since, there have been no further incidents of this kind. Not a single school shooting since Dunblane. There has, of course, been a handful of mass shootings in the United Kingdom, one of which took place as recently as 2021. But these kind of occurrences are few and far between. When they do happen, they generate a huge amount of shock, upset and introspection. Perhaps it's worth echoing what a mass shooting expert, Jacqueline Shidkraut, told the Smithsonian Magazine. Quote, Here in the US, we have this broken record cycle of what responses to mass shootings or school shootings look like. Everybody demands action, and then absolutely nothing gets done. Whereas in Great Britain, they were actually able to get stuff done. End quote. Again, I reiterate what has been said before, and that is that there is a huge difference between Britain and America's relationship with guns. And yet, change is possible. The same mass shooting expert also had this to add, quote, They did more than offer thoughts and prayers, and that speaks a lot to the power of collective action. End quote. Dunblane is a crime that will forever haunt the little village in which it happened but its lasting impact was one of change and action. The school shooting in Dunblane was the very last of its kind within the United Kingdom. The Dunblane school shooting undoubtedly changed Britain 